0: So if you're looking for a title, I'll just go ahead and give it. It's a Hallelujah, for He Alone Must Be Praised. And I want us, we're going to be reading out of Isaiah 40 if you want to find that while I read a quote from Spurgeon. It says, Would you lose your sorrows? Would you drown your cares? Then go plunge yourself in the God's, Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in His immensity. And you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of grief and sorrow, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout music, musing upon the subject of the Godhead. So I feel like my message is kind of just, uh, A continuation of what John has talked about this, the last few weeks, just the sovereignty of God, His control, His power. And so, um, I was just thinking as we sang this morning, so many songs about His greatness, how great our God is. And, um, and we'll see this today. So if you'll turn, if you haven't found Isaiah 40 yet, I'm going to find it. Um, a little context to help us figure out where we're, what's going on. So, this is a major. This chapter is a big transition in the book of Isaiah, which many of us don't realize that until we start studying. Um, so, up to this point, you have a lot of historical facts and a lot of um, speaking about actual dates and people, and and it's not. In verse 4, chapter 40, it's a complete transition. It's a transition to, um, more promises of the future. So, up to this point, the majority of these, um, the first 39 chapters are, um, what we would call kind of condemnation. And you, there's, stor- there's historical stories here, too. And verse 30, or chapter 38 is where we hear about Hezekiah being healed after he cried out to the God and God said, I'll give you 15 more years. And then in verse 39, we have the story of Hezekiah, or chapter 39. Hezekiah's invited, the Babylonians have come from a far country and he shows them everything, his house, the Lord's house, everything. And and God said and Isaiah comes to him and says, "What are you? Who are these guys?" And then he goes, "What did you show them?" He goes, "Everything." And then Isaiah says, um, "These men, the Babylonians, are going to come and take your, your those who are your offspring, and take them into the land of Babylon." And it's interesting. Verse eight of chapter thirty-nine is the end of that chapter. Um, it says, Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. For he thought, For there will be peace and truth in my days. He was thinking about himself. It was a, for him, that was great peace, a great hope. Okay, I, I, they're not going to come during my lifetime. Um, but it was temporary. It was only for him. His children, if they had been in the same room, they're looking at him like, Dad, what's wrong with you? He's just said that we're going to exile, and you're all excited over here. Um, so, the people of Judah needed hope, and that's why we start verse one of chapter forty with "Comfort, O comfort." That's really important that he said it twice because he wants the people of Judah. This is prophecy, okay? This is not just this is a prophecy to the people of Judah about coming out of exile, okay? And also, you'll, we'll see, see what else it, it entails. But he says, comfort, O comfort, to get our attention. And then, it's really interesting, he says, comfort, O comfort, my people, says your God. This is really this, my people and your God. It might make you think of uh, a couple passages, but specifically, if you'll look in Leviticus chapter 26... Because these words are—they're not just random words, you know. Bible talk—we hear that a lot. My God, your people, or or my people, your God—we hear that a lot. And I mean, it's throughout the the Old Testament and even the New Testament. So sometimes we can overlook. And honestly, when I was studying, at first I overlooked it, and then I remembered a, something I had heard. I couldn't remember who I heard it from, but they had mentioned that, and I I went looking. So Leviticus 26, verse 12, says, Oh, sorry, I'm the wrong part. As you can tell, I'm not the most qualified to be up here, but God still uses unqualified people, right? It says in verse 12, I will also walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. This is what God is saying. He's saying, I will be with you. That's the important thing. If you remember, Moses said, I'm not going anywhere unless your presence goes with us. That's what set the people of Israel apart from every nation around them. God was with them. And the people knew it. Everyone around them knew it. Remember the story of Rahab. They knew that God was with them. Why? Because He showed His power in their lives. And they knew He was with them because the tabernacle was a, sit, a sign, and the cloud and the fire. That's how they knew God was with them. Because the cloud signified His presence to them. And so, when He's saying this to them, if you're in exile, if, this, if you're thinking about what Isaiah said after this has happened, after this prophecy has come true you're in exile and you're thinking oh yes he will be my god again he i will be his per, his we will be his people again there's hope this is a future hope and this hope extends beyond return from exile um and it says in verse 2 i think we should really think about what it says here it says speak kindly to jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended and that her iniquity has been removed. That she has received the Lord's hand double for all her sins. I think it's so important, this first part where it says, speak kindly, I think in King James it says, comfortably. The idea is that speak to the heart of the people. Have compassion when you speak this. This is God's compassion being given to His people. And so... And Jerusalem is that that picture of His people. Yes, it's a a place, but when you you think of Jerusalem, you think of the people of God and His presence. So when it says, and call out to her that that her warfare has ended, it's the idea that, you know what? When that exile ends, I'm bringing you back. That doesn't mean that there's not going to be struggles. That doesn't mean... But I am with you. That's the thing. If God is with us, if we are His people and He is our God, we have hope for the future. And that, yes, they went into exile. And actually, if you, if you think about it, here it says, at the very end, it says, double for all her sins. Now, some might be sitting there thinking, as I did when I first read it, what, they had to pay twice for their sins? That's, that's not what it means. The, the idea of double is that it's ample. It's the completion of their sin has been paid. And, and we'll see that in the next the verse, how that happens. But, um, and also some have said that when they say double, we can think of the exile. And then actually when the Romans come and conquer, there was a very wicked man named Antiochus. And if you know Roman history, and he did just dis- deplorable things um, that if you look up his name um, on Google, you'll find some good information on him. I don't have time today to talk about him, but he was a wicked, wicked man, and he hated God, and he hated his people. So it can be here that God, yes, they have paid, God has taken away their iniquity, And this is how, and we've all heard this quoted Um, in verse 3, it says, "...a voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God." Anybody heard that before? Maybe? Yeah, because this is quoted in Matthew about John the Baptist. And it's interesting here that in both of these cases, the word Lord... And the word God are two very specific terms for the word God. So, Lord is Yahweh, or sometimes transliterated Jehovah, and God is Elohim. This is talking about Jesus Christ, our Lord. So anyone that can say Jesus is not God, you have to ignore what the Bible says about Him in the Old Testament. Why would the New Testament people quote Jesus, quote these verses about Jesus, if they didn't believe He was God. And we must believe that He is God in the flesh. Um, so I want to read verse 3 until 8, and then we'll talk a little bit about this section. It says, "...a voice is calling, "'Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. "'Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. "'Let every valley be lifted up "'and every mountain and hill be made low. "'And let the rough ground become a plain "'and the rugged terrain, a broad valley.'" Then the Lord, the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Call out. When he answered, What shall I call out? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The gra- grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever." And this section, the first two verses are actually um, what's called parallelism in the Bible. And it's to give us emphasis. If you notice in verse 3, it says, clear the way. And, the, and then the verse below it says, make smooth. That's the same. It's to give us understanding. It's like if I tried to explain, if Rob tried to explain to me uh, mechanical terms using mechanical terms, the first time I wouldn't understand it. But the second time, he might use layman terms, and I'll be like, oh, yeah, I know the rotary girder thing, or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Only a few of you got that one, but... uh... (laughs) Anyways, um, so he's saying it twice in two different ways so that we understand what he's saying. So the first one, it says, "clear clear, and then the word for way would be like a highway, And then the wilderness is a desert. And make smooth is clear. So it's it's just giving us a double emphasis on this is what has to happen. And then in the second verse, we have actually what's opposites. It says, let every valley be lifted up. And then let every mountain and hill be made low. So he's doing a contrasting to get our attention. Look, this is going to be a plain. This is going to be... A, a way that is is clear, and then so we know that John came, and Jesus still suffered persecution. So, what what was why was John coming if if it seems like he still Jesus still suffered? The point was not to make Jesus's path easy. The point was to prepare the people to receive Christ through repentance. It says in verse 5, "...the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken, and a voice calls out. Then He answered, What shall I call out? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass." The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. That's right. And I think there's two really important points in, in this section that we need to remember. And this is, honestly, it's what this passage, all of Isaiah 40, is about. And it's two things that we have to realize to prepare the way for the Lord. And this is even today. Man and his contributions are vanity. And we can look at that in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, if you'll look there with me. We all have heard this. I mean, it's not anything new. But I'm going to read 2 through 11. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What advantage does man have in all his work, which he does under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place, it rises there again, blowing toward the south, then turning toward the north. The wind continues swirling around. And on its circular course, the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the river flows, they will flow again. All things are wearisome, man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, See this! it is new already it existed for ages which were before us there's no remembrance of earlier things and also of the latter things later things which will occur there will be for them no remembrance among those who will call who will come later still i mean we look at just history and i'm sure men thought oh i'm making a great name for myself and no one even knows who they are anymore um or ten years ago whoever won the national championship in basketball. Can anybody here name who that was? I don't know. I didn't look it up, but um I don't know by heart. But man that year I bet they their team was we're the greatest thing ever and then the next day everybody's talking about the next team that's gonna win. The big the the big game and we act like history is something that's gonna stand forever, but if people don't remember, it's vanity. And and if you look at the end of Ecclesiastes, this is what he comes to a conclusion at the end. In verse thirteen it says, the conclusion, twelve thirteen, sorry. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God, keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act of judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. So, he's come to a conclusion that it's God. That's where our value is found. Without God, there is no value to life. Despite what anyone else may say in the world who doesn't believe in a God, or they believe in another God, our God is the only one who brings hope for a life that has lived in this world. That doesn't mean we don't enjoy the things that God has given us. Um, I love my wife and my kids and eating good food, as you probably can tell. Um, <laughs> but those are just vain, vain things. They're, they're, they're valueless if God is not Lord of my life because this life is so short. Like it said, the grass withers and the flower fades. I mean, I think of a dandelion at the end of the summer, and they have those little, I don't know what, the seedling things, and you just blow on it, and it's all gone. Just poof. And that's our life. We can't act like we have an eternity on earth. We don't. It's short. This life is very short. And we shouldn't look at... we I don't like the term afterlife for this reason, because we act like... Life is the the central, and the afterlife just happens to come. No, eternity must be our central focus on this earth. It has to be, because all we we can look around and, and men who think they were great. Even this week, the 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 president of Zimbabwe just got taken out by his military. Pretty much told, go find a new country to run. We don't want you or your wife to be in control of our country anymore. And the, the week before, he thought he was in complete power, had everybody's support. Just like Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, John has been preaching the last few sermons about God's power over the nations. And we're going to see that here in Isaiah. But, so our first point in that this section is man and his contributions are vanity. And the second one is God's Word will stand forever. Forever. And... I want to look at numbers 13:19 because this is this is really what I want us to see today that we can trust God. He has not lied and he will not lie to us. His word is always true whether anyone else agrees with us or not because his word will stand. So numbers 13:19 Or oh, wait Somehow I got the wrong section. Maybe I. Anyways, we've all heard the verse. I don't know where, somehow I missed, put my notes down on this. But, um, what he says is it's when Balak has tried to get Balaam to curse Israel, and he says 23. 23. Should have went over my numbers again. Yeah, okay. Numbers twenty three, nineteen. And this is so he's tried to curse them, he or he wants him to curse him. And Balaam's like, "Look, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said it? Will he not do it? Or has he spoken? Will he not make it good?" I have received a command to bless. When He has blessed, then I cannot revoke it. This is God's promise to every person in this room, whether you're going through a tough trial or you're just living a normal day, normal life. God's promises are true. This this should make us just well up with praises for our God. I know I'm not in the situation that some people in this room are in. But I've been through some situations where... I felt like God was as far away from me as he could be, but his promises were still true. He removed his manifest presence for a moment so that I would know how much I needed him, so that I would understand my need for him. So I want to read another verse, Hebrews 6. So some New Testament. What what did the Apostle Paul say about things like this? Hebrews chapter 6. If we can't trust God's Word, then we might as well not follow Christ. Because how can we trust that Christ was who He said He was? If His Word is not true, then we just need to throw it out the door and walk away. And I'm not saying that in a, a light way, but we must tr- trust His Word from beginning to end. Okay, si- Chapter 6, verse 13. And this is, I just want us to see, God made a promise of a Messiah in Genesis. In Genesis. All the way back in Genesis. And it didn't start with Abraham. Many of us don't realize this. If we don't, it started the day that God cursed the serpent. Because He said, her seed will crush your head. That's that's a, a direct prophecy of Jesus Christ. Thousands of years it took. But that prophecy came true. And there were prophecies from then until the day Jesus came of His coming. I mean, John was preaching in the wilderness. Jesus came just as God promised. Thousands of years. And we don't want to believe His Word? It says, so speaking of that, for when God made the promise to Abraham... Since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. So a lot of people say, I swear by God or, or at the courthouse they have you swear on a Bible, which to me, I mean half the people that swear on bibles don't even believe what's in it so it doesn't have much value for me when they swear by the bible but so we swear by something we say is greater than us and it says in the same way god desiring even more to show the air show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath so he made an oath so that we would know this hope is real. So that the people of Israel, when they're in the midst of exile, as Isaiah is saying, I am still God. I am still in control, and my word has not faded or fallen. I'm still God. He wants us to know that His promises are true. Because He loves us. It says, so that... By two interchangeable things, unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. So he's saying, God doesn't change and God doesn't lie. Those are both things. God God does not change. That means He doesn't, oh, He's not fickle. Oh, well, I'll like you today, but I don't like you tomorrow. That's what Islam teaches. They don't know. They get to heaven's gate and they're worried about whether they're going to get in or not. And we don't have such a a fickle God. We have a true God. And it says, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. A hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us having become a high priest Forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. I mean, here's Paul. Well, they don't know who wrote Hebrews, but let's assume it's Paul or any apost- Whoever wrote this book saw this in the Old Testament. They saw the promise from Abraham until the coming of Christ and said, these promises that God made came true. So we can trust every promise that God has made to us, His people. And just in case that's not strong enough, let's go to Titus. Titus 2, or Titus 1. And this is Paul. He says, Titus 1 uh, 1 through 3. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. In the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, Paul—my uh, professor actually talked about this last week. Paul, at the age of six, would have had the entire Hebrew Bible memorized as a as a student of Gamaliel. I mean, he would have been able to recite it. He wouldn't have known oh chapter because those chapters and verses were added later, but he would have been able. Can you uh, quote to me Amos? Can you quote to me Exodus? He would have been able to read quote it from memory. At age 10 he would have understood the anchors, everything about the Hebrew Bible. I mean that is incredible. And here he's saying, "Look, I've looked, I know the Bible. I know the Hebrew Bible. My eyes were blinded, but now I see that all these promises of Jesus Christ have been fulfilled." These promises were long ago thousands, some of them over, well over a thousand years ago, have been completed in Jesus Christ. It says, but at the proper time manifested even His word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of our Savior. And this, this just, again, it's saying Jesus' time had not come yet, but His promises were the promises of God, they weren't failing. Just because God takes time to fulfill His promises don't mean they're not true. That's right. And it also applies, we'll see later on, to His justice against wickedness. So, let's go back to Isaiah 40. So, keep in mind these two things, that... Man and his contributions are vanity, and God's Word will stand. The test of time, it will stand, it will be true even in eternity, when time is no longer. And we kind of get a a picture here in verse 6, 7, and 8 of what man is. It's just very insignificant, it seems. But it gets worse, just in case... Uh, you're wondering, we'll, we'll find that out. So it says in verse 9, get up, get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, so cry out. So back in those days, the people would climb a mountain because that was the best way to get their voice projected and to be seen by the people. So he's saying, you need to give this news to the people of Jerusalem. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. So he's making this statement, here is your God, and guess what he's going to do? He's going to describe Him. In human terms, which are very limited and finite, but he's going to describe God to us. It says, behold, the Lord will come with might, with His arm ruling for Him. behold, His reward is with Him, and His recompense before Him. So we see both here. We see His reward and His justice coming all at once. Those who have struck and treated all men wickedly will receive recompense or judgment. And those who have followed God with all their hearts will receive His reward. And this is, this is, this verse 11 is where I really um, want us to, to think a lot because this this is very essential for us to see. Because there are people who see God as so great, so beyond us, that He cannot reach down to us. That they, they throw away everything that shows God's actual work in nat- nature in our world the supernatural because they believe that God he's too big for us he's he's totally other so there's no way that he can relate to us and this is what the bible says so when they say that to you this is just point them to Hose- Isaiah 40 verse 11 like a shepherd he will tend his flock in his arm he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom he will gently lead the nursing news. And um, I was thinking about this and I was looking at pictures on Google of, you know, a shepherd with lambs. And it actually still happens. I, I know this may sound crazy, but there's still shepherds in the world. And um, there was this one in France and it had a picture of him. I mean, they're on a mountain pass and he's got probably 200 plus herd of Sheep behind him, but he's carrying the lamb because he knows the lamb's not going to make it. The lamb might stumble off the side. The lamb might get left behind for the the brown bears that the conservationists have reintroduced to the area. Um, but it's interesting that... So in that story that I was reading, so this shepherd, he goes with his flock everywhere. It says... It said in the article, he guards his flock against predators and infection, and most importantly, ensuring that none are left behind. And we, th- we think about a shepherd like that, and, and the, in that story, there was embedded another story about 200 sheep who were trying to get away from a bear. I, I guess the shepherd wasn't paying attention. And they all jumped to their deaths off of a cliff. And that's why it's so important for us to have the shepherd have the god of the universe shepherding us his power his might behind us the bear comes and he's like uh maybe I should go away this this guy's too much the sheep oh they're easy but the the shepherd I can't deal with i want to read psalm 23 i know we all know this but at least just let me read it you know i know it's i know we don't want to hear this verse any chapter anymore sorry i'm being a little sarcastic <laughs> it says the lord is my shepherd i shall not want he makes me lie down in green pastures he leads me beside quiet waters he restores my soul he guides me in paths of righteousness just like that shepherd in france up in the mountains along the border with Switzerland. He's up in the mountains, the Pyrenees area. And for His name's sake, He guides me. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. So imagine those 200 sheep, if they had had a shepherd, up in that mountain pass, or wherever they were, where the cliff was on one side and the bear was on the other, that seems like a. it may not have been in the valley for them, but it was about to lead to the valley of death. And if that shepherd had been there, if that shepherd had been there to protect his sheep, they wouldn't have perished. Two hundred perished, just like that. I fear no evil, for you are with me. That's, that's, that's why this is so important. He's with us. And that's why it was so important to the people of Israel and the people of Judah that God was with them. Because if He was with them, then who could conquer? Who could defeat them? Who could destroy them? No one. They understood this. It says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Just in case you were wondering, a rod and a staff, they're not used just to walk. They're to correct the sheep a little bit. If if you've never seen or worked with sheep, they're extremely um, unintelligent animals. (laughs) I know the Hartmans know this um, for sure, but they need a little prodding. Yes, he says they comfort me. Why? Because he knows the shepherd loves him. He knows the shepherd is guiding him, keeping him on the trail so that he doesn't fall off the cliff. That's why it's so so incredible. That's why it's comforting. Yes, it doesn't feel good at times, but he knows that it's loving correction that is happening with the rod, with the staff. I think the verse five I really like. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. It's like so they found a, a good, nice plain up in the mountains, beautiful green grass. And the bears are staring down like, mm, I'd like to eat them for lunch. But then the shepherd walks in and they're like, uh-oh, well, I guess we'll have to sit here and watch them eat while we starve. You know, that's, that's, the, that's the picture I get is, you know, they're eating at the table and all their enemies are round about wishing they could attack the sheep. But the shepherd is there with them so they can't touch the sheep. You have anointed my head with oil; my cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of the, my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So he he cares for us. He he doesn't just leave us to our own means and says, "Oh, deal with that." He doesn't. He didn't create the universe and back off and say. What will happen will happen. No, He's intricately involved in our lives. It says, speaking of the greatness of our God in verse 12 through... Let's just read verse 12 first. "...who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand, and marked off the heavens by the span, and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure..." And weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales. And this is talking about God's immensity, His greatness, His, how big God is. I mean, can you imagine being able to measure all the water of your hand, of the earth in your, the palm of your hand? I mean, this is just a picture. God is far bigger than that, but He's just giving us a, a picture of how finite we are. I mean, it would just be like a little moist, glistening hand from the waters of the earth. Be like nothing. Or the span, which I'm not sure exactly how they mean, but imagine just a span to measure. I mean, we say wingspan for sports, um, but just imagine trying to measure the heavens with a span. It would take us forever. But it says God can do it with his span. He just said, Oh, that's two spans. It'd be no spans for God, really, because, again, he is so great and so different than we see. It says, or calculated the dust of the earth by the measure. I mean, oh, I got about, mm, about, Three quarters of a cup of dirt here. That's kind of, kind of a, 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 a picture. He's, he's trying to show us how great God is. That's what he's saying. You know, before he said, here is your God. And then he's saying, this is who your God is. How great he is. How loving he is. This is what makes his love so great. He's such a great God, yet he still loves us. He doesn't need us. We'll see. But he still loves us. Weigh the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales. I mean, just, can you imagine? Okay, I have the uh, the Pyrenees over here and here are the Rockies. Yeah, the Rockies are a little bit bigger. They weigh a little bit more. Can you imagine? And then in verse 13, he talks about his wisdom. How great in knowledge he, in knowledge he is, he says, who has directed the Spirit of the Lord or as His counselor has informed Him? With whom did He consult and who gave Him understanding? And who taught Him in the path of justice and taught Him knowledge and informed Him of the way of understanding? Sometimes we, in our inability to understand what God is doing, we Try to indict the Lord and His justice. We say, "Well, God doesn't understand this. He's, I mean, he's, His justice is. Why isn't He doing anything? Why doesn't He care?" And we'll we'll see that later. We're gonna read a little bit in Habakkuk. Why doesn't He care for us? Why is He? Why does it seem like His justice is not prevailing? Why does it seem like my life is in chaos? How can this be God? How can his will be seen in this? I just think of Job. I mean, at the end, God just starts asking him question after question. Were you there? Were you there? Were you there? And Job obviously the question, answer was no. Obviously God knew that he hadn't he was not there. God was just saying, "Look, I am God. I created you." Just like the Apostle Paul says in Romans. Why is the clay talking back to the potter? Why, why are you complaining to the potter? I'm not saying that at times... There are many times in Guatemala that I was complaining to the potter a lot. <laughs> I don't understand this, God. What? I mean, even at the point of breaking. God, I don't understand this. Even in moving back, like, I don't understand why you brought us here, and then you're telling us to go back. It's not always easy to understand God's justice, His will. or. But that's why we must believe His Word. That's why His Word is so important to us. We must believe He is the mighty God who has all understanding. There's nothing outside of His ability to know. He's not surprised by your circumstances. He's not surprised by how the world is going. He's not surprised. No one has directed the Spirit of the Lord. No one has been His counselor. And verse 15, just so we have, if you know music a little bit, I'm not... Great at it, but Wesley will maybe affirm or tell me I need to pipe down. But um, so in music, when something starts getting louder and louder and louder, that's called a crescendo. Probably know that, maybe okay. So we're at the peak right now. I mean, they're shouting out, "Here is your God!" And then it's more like a extreme drop. But they call it a decrescendo. De- um, but this drop is like instant because he goes from God. Oh, here you guys are, way down here. It says he starts out with, "Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket." You know, get your five-gallon bucket out and just one little drop. That's the nations. Just in case that wasn't small enough, he's like, "Oh, well, maybe we need to, maybe we need to." Clarify this a little more. It says, they're regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. I mean, it doesn't even register. You put a piece of dust on a scale, nothing's going to change. I mean, unless you've got one of those millimeter or, you know, I don't know, even know what the measurements are for it, for that small. Maybe an engineer could tell me. Um, And then he says, Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. In verse, at the end of verse fifteen, it keeps getting lower. Okay, it keeps <laughs> says, even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. Our sins are so great in the eyes of our King, our God, that not even burning the entire forest of Lebanon, which was famous. And all the, the cattle, the animals of that land would be enough to satisfy God's greatness. That's why our sin is so great, because we've sinned against such a great and mighty God. If you're here today and you are not born again, and you say, well, I'm, you know, I'm okay. I'm not too bad. No. Sin against God is terrible. It is the worst. That we can ever do. It doesn't matter if you've come from uh, drugs and all that background, or if you were raised in the church and God saves you. We both owed an unpayable debt, so we should be equally thankful, Amen. That's right? Yeah. And if you are here and you're thinking, "Well, I'm on the coattails of my parents, I'll be okay." No, it just won't happen. You've sinned against the mighty God, this God that we are talking about today. But if you've been saved, what great um, joy we should receive when we think of who our God is and what He's done for us. Verse 17, it says, "...all the nations are as nothing before Him." Okay, now it's getting really low. "...now the nations are as nothing." so how does that put us as individuals think about that the nations i mean a nation is typically a, a geographical country full of many people and he's saying you're nothing so what does that make the people inside of that country less he says they are regarded to him as less than nothing and meaningless now everybody's wanting to get out. They're like, man, I should have taken his advice at the beginning of the message. <laughs> I, am, I, am, I am less than nothing, nothing and meaningless. In, in comparison to God, yes. In comparison to God, we are. We are nothing. We only, like Ecclesiastes says, we found our value in God. That's when we have value, is when God is Lord of our lives. Because what happens? Our lives become means to bring glory to God. That's why He created us. You know why He created us? He created us because He wanted us to experience what He experienced in eternity past in the Trinity. That fellowship, that perfect glory. That's why He created us. He wants us to experience His Glory. So if you think today, as I have in the past, well, God needs me. No. He doesn't. He never did. But He loved, so He created. And then, even in creation, He sent His only Son. Just that promise in verse 3. He is coming. He came to us. And then he starts to indict the people of, of Judah. Here he's saying, "To whom will you liken God, or what likeness will you compare to him?" You know, these these likenesses were idols. You know, let's make him look like a man. And let's. It, it says later, "And as for an idol, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver." And then he who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot, and seeks out for himself a skilled craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. So, if you have money, you go buy a tree, you get a piece of wood, then you get a, somebody that's skilled to make it look all pretty, look like who knows who, your great-grandpa. Um, then you get it wrapped in gold, and you sit down and worship it. I mean, just like Buddhists do today, I mean, they got their big fat Buddha, uh, huge idols. Huge. Is it often we here in the U.S. We don't really have idols, actual images, but are there idols in our lives? Things that have, or or maybe we're creating idols in our hearts by saying, "Well, God's not like that," but His Word says He is, or God's not. God is like this. He doesn't. He doesn't want to hurt anybody. He, he doesn't um, have wrath for sin. That's not the God of the Bible. That's an idol. We're trying to create God like man, even in our thoughts, in our way of thinking. We can't do that. We, we can't determine who we think God is. We have to go on His Word. Again, if we're going to throw out portions of Scripture, we can just be like uh, Thomas Jefferson and cut out the parts we don't like and create a Bible that's completely deistic and says God doesn't care about the universe, doesn't care about His people. So, just in case you're too poor, you just go get a, get a nice tree and have them create something for you. In Guatemala, a friend of mine's parents, who she's born again, but her parents have an idol in their house. The, it's... It's some saint, but so what? The when the Jesuit missionaries came to Central America with the conquistadors, they brought Catholicism or Christianity, as they say, um, to Central America, but they kind of forced them by sword. Okay, you can die or you can become a Catholic. Okay, so these people, what they did is they took all the idols, the saints of the church, and they created these idols to represent their old gods. And they just mixed the two together and created a god. So this, this god is sanctioned by the Catholic church, is okay, and they worship this god. They have a whole room in their house. I mean, like a bedroom. Idol in the middle, and they offer oblations to it all the time because if if they have that god in their house they'll receive blessing god will give them what they need and they want i mean my god is greater i can't describe i can use words to describe him but he's he's far above what i can imagine he's far more powerful than that idol their house burns down guess what the idol's going to burn too It's not going to be there. My God can't be destroyed. My God doesn't, it cannot be described in human terms completely. We can get an idea, but we can't totally understand him. Then verse 21. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is He. He's saying, "Look, you're trying to compare me to these idols. That's not me. I'm not Baal. I'm not whatever re- were, um, religion around you you have picked up. It is He who sits on the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers." Okay, now feeling a little bit better. I was nothingness and meaningless. Now I'm at least a grasshopper. Because <laughs> He stretches out the heavens like a curtain. I mean, I love the pictures that God uses to describe Himself. He wants us to know Him. He wants us to love Him. He wants us to worship Him. And spreads Him out like a tent to dwell in. Again, it's all imagery. It's all showing us a picture, an idea of who God is, how great He is, but it's still not enough. It's not enough to describe a God who has no limit. He He can fill our universe and He keeps going. The universe cannot contain our God. It cannot contain His love. It cannot contain His justice. It cannot contain His wisdom. Can you imagine a God who, when He pours out His love on us, He still has the same amount? He hasn't like lost any love? When He gives us wisdom, it's not like He lost some wisdom. He still has it. When He provides our needs, it's like, not like God's storehouses are, have been depleted. This is our God. When He heals us, it's not like He has less healing power. No. I mean, you, you just look at uh, Jairus and um, the, the lady with the issue of blood. He, Jesus didn't say, oh, wait, i got to recharge here. No, God's power is infinite. It doesn't have an end. He can heal our diseases. And it doesn't matter that He's already healed somebody else just a moment before. He has all power. And then he he goes to talking specifically about the l- rulers. I mean, I feel again I feel like what God has given me to share is kind of a continuation of what John has been sharing because here in verse twenty three it says, "It is He, oh He it is, who reduces rulers to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth meaningless. You can be a corrupt judge and God." can take you out. You can be a corrupt ruler. God can take you out. You can be whatever. You might even be a decent ruler, but you are all about you. God God is not limited in His power in our lives. He's not limited because He is almighty. I was... Just thinking about all that, all the message we've heard about Nebuchadnezzar, and um, trying to think of the other one that I was thinking about. But just how God's power is overall—we we can't. His sovereignty is so incredible, and yet He treats us, His people, with compassion. He brings the lambs into His bosom, and He He guides. The nursing news with compassion. This is our God. Yeah. Amen. He's great, but he's also full of compassion, just like Jesus when He's He's out in the wilderness and all these people have come and they're like, hey, send them home. They I mean we don't have enough food. But Jesus has moved com- with compassion. That's why he shared. That's why he gave food. That's his compassion compelled him. God is. This is our our God. He loves us with an infinite love. But He's also a just God. It says of the, the rulers, it says in verse 24, Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth. But God just blows. He merely blows on them and they wither. And the storm carries them away like stubble. And just look at the nations. Nebuchadnezzar. Um, and then you go even further to the Greeks. I mean, all it took was a disease and Alexander was gone. And then the Romans. I mean, some of the greatest empires to be on the face of the earth. Did they last? No, they were vain. Vanity. That's why our God is so great. He's still here. He's still real. And He's still in control. He didn't lose control when our trial started. He didn't lose control when the things in our life seem to be in chaos. He's still in control. And He'll be in control when the promise comes. He'll be in control even if you walk away. The question is, are you going to be on the side of victory or the side of defeat? Because that's what when we walk away, we accept defeat. Oh, God's not big enough. Yes, He is. That's my message today. Yes, He is. And He's worthy to be praised with our very lives. It should, when we hear songs like the songs we sing this morning, our hearts should cry out with praises. Because He must be praised. He's such a great God. He says, again, to, to reiterate in verse 25, To whom then will you liken me? that I would be as equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high. See who has created the stars and who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name. Can you imagine? Yeah, you might be able to go online and buy a star and put your name on it. (laughs) But I'm telling you, That's not going to have any value. God already gave it a name. (laughs) You may have called your your star some weird name, but uh, God already named them all. So don't waste your money going and buying a star and putting your name on it. (laughs) God has already named them all. And He leads them and says, because of the greatness of His might and the strength of His power, not one of them is missing our huge universe. And not a single star has fallen out because, oh wait, God forgot. God's not strong enough. No. He's still holding them there. His power is infinite. And He's, I mean, I can't read this chapter without thinking about how great our God is. And how I must and remember continually to praise Him even in the trials. No matter what they are, we can still praise Him. We can still live for Him. I'm thinking, uh, I actually sent this to Brett earlier, but um, this week, in the book of Job, Job was a righteous man. God even said that. And when Satan came, he came to accuse God. He didn't come to accuse Job, he came to accuse God. God, you're being too nice to Job. That's why he's following you. That's essentially what he says. He's like, he's only following you because you've blessed him. If you take away the blessings, he's done. Guess what? Job didn't walk away. He proved that God was worthy to be praised in the midst of the hard times. Even when the blessings don't seem to be there, Job followed. And guess what? God blessed him again. Again. He proved that God is worthy to be worshipped with our lives even if we don't get anything from it. God will bless us, yes, but He is to be worshipped in the midst of the trial just as though we had it all. Just as though we have that, that blessing. And I know I haven't been through many of the things that people are going through right now in this church. But I just I, I can't deny what I'm seeing in the Word. I can't deny that God is in control, that, that He still completes His promises, that His Word hasn't faded away. In verse 27 it says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? Well, this could have two meanings, and I want to look at the two examples uh, really quick of this. One could be, you're one of the Israelites, and Amos has come, and he's, uh, he's about to start talking about judgment. But it's funny, so Amos talks about eight countries when he is speaking his judgment, and And I'm not going to read from Amos. I'm just going to make a point from it. And I would advise you to read Amos. It's a really good book. Um, so Amos, he comes to the Israelites. He's a shepherd and a fig grower. And he, uh, so he comes to them. I mean, he's a nobody in their minds. Go away, Amos. You're just a country bumpkin. And, So, you're just a hillbilly, Amos. We don't even want to hang out with you. And just go back to where you came from. So Amos starts, and I'm sure they were like happy. So he, first, first country, first nation, he prophesies against the uh, Aramaeans of Damascus. He's like, judgment is coming. And I'm sure all the Israelites were like, hooray, yes, it's about time, God. And then the Philistines, oh yes, Lord, praise the Lord, they're going down. And then he says, Tyre, and they're like, oh yes, those, those people, they're, they're terrible. They need to, they're our enemies. These are all enemies of Israel. The Edomites, you know, the, the children of Esau. It's like you, the Edomites, you are going to be de- destroyed, and I'm sure all the Israelites are saying, amen, praise the Lord. And then, then he gets to the Ammonites, which are the children of Lot through his daughter, one of his daughters. And then the Moabites, both descendants of Lot. Again, fierce enemies of Israel. And, and the seventh one is Judah. So this is the northern tribe he's talk, that Amos is talking to. And Judah, and I I'm, bet I'm they're like, Praise the Lord. Finally, God is going to judge Judah. It's about time, and this is a number of completion. It's number seven. God must be done. Guess what? There was an eighth nation, and it was Israel. They were so wicked that they had been deceived into believing that their worship to these calves, if you remember, that were created to worship was acceptable acceptable uh, acceptable to God. Yet they were oppressing everyone. So remember the year of Jubilee that all lands were returned to the people, and people who were Israelites who were in slavery would have to be returned, given their freedom. They weren't doing that. They were keeping the land, putting people in more and more oppression, and um it actually <laughs> Amos actually called the, uh, the Israelite people the cows of Bashan. They actually called the women that, um, saying they're just lounging around in their luxurious sofas and their marble homes and get outside their doors are the oppressed and those who are being destroyed. And, but they, they had, Presume that, oh, I'm blessed, so, you know, I have all this wealth, our military's strong, so God is with us. Our, we're zealous for God, though the wrong one. Um, we won't be, be, God doesn't see our sin. So this is one interpretation of what this means. It could be that you're in this room and you're thinking, my sin's not that big of a deal, so God's, you know, it's not, He can't see it. It's hidden from Him. Or maybe you're the other side, and you're like Habakkuk, and we can turn there real quick. I'm sorry, I think I'm preaching longer than Mr. Solinger, and I, problem is I got so much, and I don't know where to stop. So if you have a roast burning, you might just uh, have to plan on eating out. I'm sure the kids wouldn't mind some fries or something. (laughs) Uh, Okay. Habakkuk 1. Just in case you're wondering, it's right after Nahum. So Habakkuk... I mean, he's a righteous man and he's saying, so this is our other side. You're, you're, you're following God with all your heart, but this is your cry. It says, how long, O Lord, will you, will I call for help and you will not hear? I cry out you, to you violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous, therefore justice comes out perverted. Maybe this is how you feel. Maybe you feel like, God, why does it seem like everyone around me is successful in the world, but my life seems to be under attack? I think there are people probably in this room, I've felt this many times, Why did it seem like these athletes who love themselves have everything and I'm struggling to do this or struggling to make ends meet or struggling with this sickness or this whatever trial I'm going through? Well, God answered. He says, I'm going to bring Babylon to bring justice to the people of Judah. Because this is who Habakkuk is talking about. And then he's like, well, okay, God, um, there's a little problem here. Um, and he, he, he asks a question. He says, so this is, Habakkuk is like a, a conversation between God and Habakkuk. It's like Habakkuk says something, God answers, and then, so God answers, okay, Babylon's coming. And, and then Habakkuk has this question. he's like, in the end of verse 13 of chapter 1, he says, why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? So Habakkuk is like, we have a question, we have a problem here. Um, we're more righteous than them, so we we shouldn't be swallowed up by them. Speaking of Judah, not not of him specifically, he he was calling for justice because he knew God was a righteous God and he knew that Judah needed to be judged but he didn't like the way that God was going to judge them. He didn't like the response that God gave. So, he's like, well, we're more righteous. And then God replies in chapter 2, verse 4. It says, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by faith. He's like, Time out, Habakkuk. You've got some pride in your heart because these people they they're they're worse than the Babylonians because they know who God is and yet they don't serve him. The Babylonians don't even know who God is. And yes, I'm gonna bring Babylon's gonna come under destruction too. I'm gonna send destruction upon them, but I'm using them as an instrument to judge my people. And, uh, and then to end, we see that Habakkuk gets the point, because we all know this verse. And this is, should be our cry in the midst of the trial, in the midst of um, chaos, loss, and, and whatever it may be. Verse 17 of chapter 3. says, For the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines. The, the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food. Though the flock be cut cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exalt the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. And He has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on high places. And then it says, for the choir director of my strength instruments. So he got the point. He said, okay, God, you're in control. I'm not going to... Complain about how you judge, when you judge. Because what? Sometimes we're the one that needs to be judged. Sometimes we need God's long-suffering in our lives. I know I do. Because I have fallen and felt like couldn't change anything. And God was long-suffering. He kept guiding me with His rod and showing me the way to go. He didn't give up on me. So we should be thankful that God is long-suffering. I think a lot of times what happens to us is uh, what is spoken of in Ecclesiastes. I'll just read it and I'll give you the the reference here. One second. Ecclesiastes, I think it's chapter 8. Yeah, chapter 8, verse 11, it says, "...because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly..." Therefore the hearts of the sons of man among them are given fully to do evil. Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, still I know that I will be well for those it will be well for those who fear God, who fear him openly. But it will not be well for evil men, and he will not lengthen his days like a shadow because he does not fear God. So sometimes we don't see God's justice brought upon. The people in the world who are not following God, who love wickedness. And we think, well, God must have lost control. Or, why, what's wrong with me? Why, why do I feel like God doesn't care for me and he's taking care of all these people? We can't assume that blessing is always a sign of God's hand with us. There are many people in the world that have financial Stability, yet they have no God. It's all going to pass away. What we have will not pass away because it's from and through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Verse 28, it says, "Do Do you not know? Have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth? He does not become weary or tired. His understanding is unscrutable in mine, or unsearchable, I think, in King James. But just imagine trying to find God's understanding. Find the end of His understanding. That's that's what I really... It's limitless. We We can't go far enough to find the end of it. Because it has no end. So we must... Trust Him. And I know it's not easy in the midst of trials. And I haven't been in some of the trials, again, that some of you are going through. But trust God. Worship Him with your life. Show that you that our God is faithful to be served in the midst of the hardest times of your life. Because that's what proves that God is real. Men who are willing to live and die trusting His command, trusting who He is. It says He gives strength to the weary. I mean, what a promise. This is a promise to us, okay? Just in case you're wondering. He gives strength to the weary. And him who lacks might, He increases power. This is for us. This is a promise. We should rejoice in this. We should rejoice in our great God who has Limitless power is saying, I will give you power. He has unlimited strength. I will be your strength. It's in our weakness, as the Apostle Paul says, that we we come to that point in our lives. It's in our weakness that He is made strong. Because when we are when we think ourselves strong, what happens? We fall. But when we're weak and we realize we need Jesus. We need God. That's when He can move. That's when He gives us strength. That's when He makes us, as it says in verse 31, to mount up His wings like eagles. It says in verse 30, Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. I think it's interesting that this word young men here, I mean, this is talking about men, fit, athletic men, like Olympic athletes. I mean, they're ripped and they have no... Like, they could go, I mean, all day long. You're like... If you were a swimmer, it'd be like Michael Phelps. He gets, he gets in the pool and he could swim all day and get out and still be ready to swim after he eats enough food to replenish his supply. But that's what it's saying. It's saying when they, when these Olympic athletes, when these strong men become weak, guess what? You won't be. Because God is with you. He's not limited by our physical abilities. He's not limited by our humanity. He is the all-powerful God who created us. Amen. In verse 31, the, the promise really comes true. And, and uh, we're just thinking about... It says in Psalm 103, verse 5, which many of you know, it says, your strength will be renewed like the eagles. and And here, it has the same idea in the King James. It, it's... The NASB is what I, I use. Um, but that idea of, so how, how does he renew your youth and, and why does he use the example of an eagle? So, if you didn't know, eagles, they, they have different, uh, feathers that they lose what's called molting and they lose, um, feathers. So, like a baby one would have its first set of feathers at like five weeks and then it'd be about a year, 15, uh, months that they would get their second set. And every year, typically they get a new set until their fifth year when they become an adult eagle and a fully mature eagle. And they still lose feathers and they're always being replenished. They're always be- being given new feathers. Not they don't lose them all at once and then gain them all. They lose one here and they gain one over here so that they can still fly and do what they need to do to survive. Imagine that—that's what he's describing here. That he's giving them new feathers because the old ones need to be replaced. They're—they're they're getting bad. They're—they're they're not fit for that time in the eagle's life. So each year, God gives them new feathers, and 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 eventually, every year they'll have a full new set of feathers, from head to toe or head to claw. Um, <laughs> but. And how, what a great picture for us that that's the idea is that God will renew us. He will give us everything we need in each and every season and stage of our life. And we can trust Him because what? His word is true. God will not lie. His word stands forever. And because we know He is a powerful God, this should in us ring praises. And I want to uh, read a hymn that I I really like, and I'm I'm sure all of you have heard this. Uh, Fernando Ortega sings this this one really well, if you want to look it up. And we all know it. All creatures of our God and King, lift up your voice and with us sing. Alleluia, alleluia. Thou burning sun with golden beam, thou silver moon with softer gleam. O praise Him, O praise Him. Alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. Thou rushing wind that art so strong, ye clouds that sail in heaven along. O praise Him, Alleluia. Thou rising morn, in praise rejoice, ye lights of evening find a voice. O praise Him, O praise Him. Alleluia, Alleluia. And all ye men of tender heart, forgiving others, take your part. O sing ye, Alleluia. Ye who long pain and sorrow bear. Praise God, and on Him cast your care. Oh, praise Him, oh, praise Him. Alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. Praise God, from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Alleluia, alleluia. Praise Him above, ye heavenly host, Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. I hope that this is the result. This kind of praise is the result of what you're hearing today that no matter what you're going through you can find praise in your heart not only to here in this building together but most especially here but every day that that's why people will say why do you have hope your life is a wreck well they probably think I'm a wreck for sure um, your life is a wreck you don't have hardly anything your your life You know, they're saying, why do you have hope? And you say, because I know who God is. I know who He is and I love Him and He loved me first and He saved me. That's why we have hope. That's why we get up every morning and praise Him. That's why when we go to bed, we praise Him. That's why, like this song, this hymn, we praise Him. And there's another hymn that we all know. I'm going to read it too and then we'll close. I would advise, if you have a chance today, to read Psalm 145. I wanted to read it today, but it's too long, And but it is an incredible passage to, I feel like, to end what we've talked about today. It says, this, this hymn, Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee, Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Summer and winter, and springtime and harvest, sun, moon, and stars, and their courses above. Join with all nature and manifold witness to Thy great faithfulness, mercy, and love. Pardon for sin and peace that endureth, Thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with ten thousand beside. So I hope that these kinds of words are coming from your hearts today in response to God's Word, in response to who God is, and His love for us. This contrast between a nothing like me and a great and powerful God who would reach down, create me, save me, a sinner wicked, and love me. That's why I sing. That's why I praise. And I hope that that will be why you sing and you praise today and forevermore. So let's pray and Maybe Ben will sing us in a hundred songs or something. (laughs) Father, we just thank You that You allow us to see who You are, that You want us to know You, that You guide us to Your presence, that You came even when we were dead in our sins, and You spared us. You brought us out of the miry clay and You set us on a rock. We thank You that You shepherd us, You guide us with Your love. And I just pray, Lord, that today we would be reminded of how great our God is, and yet of His great love and compassion for us, His people. We thank You for this, Lord, and we just praise You with all of our being. In Jesus' name, amen.